You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Really great to have you here this morning. Welcome. If you're a guest with us, again, welcome. We're really glad that you're with us. And by design, we're diving into God's Word a little earlier than we usually do in our service times together because we have a long, extended worship response time at the end of this, um, multiple songs and just multiple opportunity to continue to listen to the Spirit and respond to what He's doing this morning. So excited about that too. So that being said, um, so... I have a daylight saving story for you. But it starts with the premise that no one ever forgets to set their clocks forward, right? Especially this crew. But uh, many years ago, I did. Jamie had set forward all the other clocks in in our home, but my clock, which I was responsible for, only one, next to my nightstand, and I failed to set it forward. And so, you know, woke up, not to the alarm, but just woke up, and realized I was really, really late. And so I quickly got on my clothes, thankfully didn't come in my pajamas, and just found some clothes, put them on, got out the door, got here, and um, the song where I, I knew the schedule that morning, and the song where I was supposed to get up and start preaching was just ending. And so I, I quickly put on the microphone and came up and preached the worst sermon of my life. But you know, um, it's just one of those things. So when you think about light in particular, what, what are the images that come to mind? And no saying daylight savings, that's cheating. We know about that. But when you think about light, what is your frame of reference for that? And this isn't rhetorical. I'd like to hear from you. Jesus. Jesus. Okay, that's cheating, but I like it, Emily, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But what else about light comes to mind? Sunshine. Sunshine, warmth, being grateful to be alive. What else about light? A light bulb, light bulb. Yep. Jesus is the light. What what else about light? It illuminates. It shows you where you're going. It it reveals. Yeah, I think all that is is reasonable and absolutely. It's right on. So if we were now to journey back to the ancient Near East, to the first century, where we're going to be joining our story today, there would be no frame of reference for daylight savings times, right? They would go, what? What's that about? Probably would sign on to many, if not all, the things we just came up with. But as we enter into this story today, in this chapter today, in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to make another one of these mind-blowing sayings, spiritual realities, truths, that he's just going to declare to everyone. And he's going to say, I am the light of the world. And what's really helpful and necessary for us to understand is at least some of the frame of reference that they would have had when he said that. Because it it would be more than just the things we talked about here. It's very reasonable to assume that when Jesus was talking about light, they would be reminded of these spiritual realities. That light was his first act of creation, God's first act of creation. Light represents the presence, power, the revealing of God. Light represents God's leading of them in the desert, in their history when they were wandering for 40 years in the desert. It was the pillar of fire at night that that led them, God's presence. And then, of course, light also meaning salvation and representing salvation. And many thanks to Gary Brashears. He, uh, He 
got this to me, and it's actually written on the back of your sermon notes, so you, those of you taking notes don't have to scramble to take this down. But surely this would have been in their frame of reference when Jesus begins talking about light. But how about this? We know that this was taking place at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And Sukkot is the Hebrew word for shelter. And again, that remembers the desert wanderings for 40 years when they were without a home and they, they lived in shelters. And so at this pilgrimage feast that happened every year, people would build booths to remember and commemorate that part of their history. But as we've also seen, the Feast of Tabernacles also celebrated God's provision for them in the desert. Food, water, but also it was a celebration of light. Every night during the feast, at around dusk, these two giant candelabras would be lit in the outer court of the temple, the court of the women. And when the sun fully set, you could see that light from miles around. And it was on purpose. It was to remind the people of the presence of God and his faithfulness when he was that pillar of fire during the Exodus and when he led them through the desert. So what we have to appreciate and understand is that when Jesus says these words, these opening words to this passage we're going to look at, I am the light of the world, he's saying it in the very place in the temple where these lights had been lit. So this was on purpose. And this was intentional, what he said, how he said it, and where he said it. And whenever we preach, we're always trying to equip you to read the Bible for yourself and to glean and mine God's truth from it for yourself. And it's really helpful to have this in our minds as now we look at these spiritual realities that Jesus is talking about. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, and remember everything we just talked about, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Well, then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would have known my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. And you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy and what I've heard from him, I tell the world. 
they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many believed in him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there is so much in that passage for us. And we, we see this exchange going on between him and the Pharisees. Last week, if you weren't with us, Matt took us through the story of the woman who had been caught in adultery. And really, that was all designed to trap Jesus. And now they're not just moving from trying to trap Jesus, they're openly attacking him. Look at this exchange that goes on. Jesus declares, I know where I came from and where I'm going. And they say, you were born illegitimately. You do not know God. They have no response to that. Jesus says, you will die in your sin. And actually, he says that three times in this passage we just read. And they say, who are you? He declares that his truth will make them free, will set them free. And we're cheating a little bit and jumping in the next week's passage. We didn't read that next verse. But they declare, we don't need to be free. We're, we're children of, of Abraham. And so it goes. And there's some significant, so many significant things that he says here. One of which being, you do not know me or my father. Which once again emphasizes the reality that right relationship with God isn't about knowing about God. It's about knowing him. It's about being in relationship with him. He declares that they are from below and he is from above. He's not saying they're from hell. But he is saying you are from this broken sinful world and I am from heaven. I am the light who has descended from the height. And then he declares his identity once again with invoking the divine name. I am. So you have all these statements about Jesus' identity. All these proofs. And then he gives them really the ultimate proof and says this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And those of you who have either been with us in this series or who know the Gospel of John, this sounds familiar. Because it is. Because Jesus has said this before, even more definitively. He said this in John 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now when he said that, he very deliberately was reaching back 1,500 years into their history and pulling forward a story and a reality, a history that they all knew. In Numbers 21, when they were wandering in the desert, because of their disobedience and rebelling against God, they continued to rebel and disobey God. And so, in judgment of them, he sends poisonous snakes in their midst. Do you remember that story? And if you read that in context and you read how incredibly patient and long-suffering God was with them, I personally, I feel like, why didn't he send the snakes among them sooner? He was incredibly patient with them but finally he has to judge their rebellion and so he does and so these snakes go among the people people begin to die because they're venomous snakes and if you remember and this is where the story goes hmm, God commands Moses to make fashion this bronze snake and to lift it up on this pole and everyone who looks at the snake will be saved and they are and it is a foreshadowing of someday when the Messiah comes, when the promised one comes, when the chosen one comes, he will be lifted up just like that snake and everyone who looks to him will be saved. 
You ever been bitten by a poisonous snake? No. I hope not. No one in the last service had. Doesn't look like anyone here has. Quite possible you may not be here if you've been bitten by a poisonous snake, but hopefully not, right? But there is a poison that swims around in my veins. And it's in yours too. In fact, we all start out in the same place with this venom, this spiritual cancer that we all have, whether we know it or not. It's sin. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, we're told that at the beginning of human history there, that sin entered the world as a result of that. Selfishness, being self-absorbed, self-focused, this bent that all of us apart from right relationship with God have, where we just, we have this propensity to make life all about us. We're selfish. And we will pursue that selfishness at God's expense and at the expense of, of others. And three times in this passage, Jesus says, you're going to die in your sins. That's pretty heavy stuff. What does he mean by that? I mean, can't we deal with this selfishness by, by just trying harder? Being a better person? Or maybe religion. Maybe empty religion is, is, is what we need. But all these are just band-aids, right? It's like giving someone with cancer a band-aid and thinking that that's going to make things better. It's, it's not a deep enough change. The reality is you and I don't need to change our behavior. We need a savior. We need someone to save us from this toxin that swims around in the very core of our being. And we get that change by getting a new heart, by being changed from the inside out. An inside out change. Not an outside in change like empty religion tries to do by changing behavior and trying. No, this is about changing from the inside out. It's not about becoming nicer. It's about becoming newer. It's about becoming new. Becoming a brand new person. Becoming who God always intended us to be through receiving Jesus Christ. And so when he was lifted up on that cross and then was buried and then rose again, all who look to him, another way of saying that is all who respond to him, receive him, will be saved. Amen. So Jesus declaring that he's the light of the world means that we need to recognize that. We need to do business with that. And what we need to understand is this very deliberate warning that's here and that we've looked at before. And some of you who have been with us in this series are going to say, yeah, I've heard that before. Right. That's because John continues to illustrate it and to talk about it. And it's this. The Pharisees, it's not that they couldn't believe. It's not that the religious leaders couldn't believe. It's that they wouldn't believe. And once again, we see this profile of unbelief. Unbelief is not the lack of evidence. It's not needing more time. It's not wrestling with and struggling with if you believe something or not. Unbelief isn't about the absence of something. It's about the presence of something. It's about this determination that no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how much you try to convince me, I will not believe. That is unbelief. And that is what we see in these religious leaders. Jesus is giving them proof after proof after proof, even in this very passage we just read, and they refuse to recognize it, and they refuse to believe it. God seemingly has limitless patience for people who are struggling and trying to believe, but God has limited 
patience for those who will not believe. And yes, there is a warning there. It's not just enough to recognize the light. You've got to respond to his light and to him by receiving him into your life. This is about believing through receiving. And see, we often take belief and that word belief and that idea belief and that reality belief and we dilute it. And we use it in all sorts of contexts. And many times it means nothing more than just mental assent. Do you believe that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Do you live it? No. But belief is always active. It's never, it's never passive. If you believe something, you will actually act on it. That's exactly what this is talking about here. Every time when it says believe in Jesus, that's a preposition there. It could also reasonably be translated believe into Jesus. Now we don't talk that way, so it's not translated that way, but the reality is still there that to believe in Jesus is a whole person response. It's not just a mental response. It's you're actually going to live your life for him. But somehow there's a disconnect for us at times when it comes to belief, especially spiritual belief, especially believing in Jesus by receiving him into our lives. I got a call well, a couple weeks ago, actually it was a conversation rather, conversation with Vinny Sylvia, who, my man Vinny, who's, who's here this morning, he said, hey, you want to go fishing? And I said, yeah. And so we went fishing a couple days ago. And I have a wise brother-in-law who says, there's no such thing as bad weather, there's just bad gear. <laughs> I'm here to tell you it was bad weather in the midst of good gear, and we were cold. We went out on Thursday morning, Vinny? Was it Thursday? Friday morning. I'm 54, I don't remember things anymore, evidently. <laughs> and so we're out on the boat, we're the only boat on the water for a while, it's cold, it's so cold you can see your breath cold, you know, it feels like it should be snowing and it's raining constantly and the wind is blowing, and, but it's fun. And so, <laughs> and we got a steaming hot cup of nothing. You've got no fish that day. But all that being said, it was still fun, it was Vinny time. I would happily sit in the rain and cold with Vinny for hours and hours, which is what we did. You know what? My memory is going, but not my hearing. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. So, all things being said, we need to bring this ship into the harbor, okay? We need to stay focused. Um, so, imagine when he comes to me, and he says, you want to go fishing? And I say, yeah. Great. Do you know I have a boat? Yeah. Do you know it's trustworthy? Yeah. Do you know there's fish in the river? There's, the fish are running? Yeah, great. Do you think we'll have fun? Yeah. Do you think you can catch fish? Yeah, get in the boat. No. <laughs> now here's the question. Do I really believe that I can catch a fish if I'm not going to get in the boat? And yes, it's a very simple, very limited illustration. And we look at that and go, well, duh. But how come we think that we can have right relationship with God without actually having a defining moment where we receive him into our lives? I mean, just based on polls, the vast majority of our country say, oh yeah, I believe in God. Really? What does that mean? Does that mean you've responded to him? You recognize who he is by receiving him into your life? No. There's a disconnect that happens. We don't live the rest of our life that way, but we will when it comes to believing in God. But we have to understand and appreciate what Jesus is saying here. Is there's a, you need to receive him into your life. This very gospel started with John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, 
To those who chose to believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believe something, you need to act on it. So I'm going to press here a little bit. Why is it, if you haven't, why is it that you haven't received him? Boy, in my spiritual journey for a long time, I'll be really honest with you, it was fear. When I was at that Young Life camp as a high school student and I was hearing much of what you're hearing now, and not, it not only made sense to me, I was feeling compelled that I, I, I needed to respond to this, but I, I was really struggling to. What would my friends think? My friends who had come to this camp with me, they weren't responding the way I was. What would they think? What would my parents think? They've made it really clear not to get into this Jesus stuff too seriously. And what did I think? What was this really going to mean for my life? Was I really willing to receive Jesus into my life? Not just to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. No, but to actually know him because I'd received him. And one of the realities we've looked at is that no one really seeks Jesus, responds to Jesus, unless they're being helped. Unless the Father who sent Jesus draws them. Or as it goes on to say, no one, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. I had to reach out, and honestly, this is the part of my story that I, I usually neglect to tell you. In that defining moment when I received him into my life at that camp, I asked for help because I knew I needed it. I said, man, I don't know what I'm doing here, but Jesus, if you're real, if this is true, I, I need your help because I don't know how I'm going to do this. So have you asked for his help to believe? Man, that's not just a one-time thing when you receive him into your life. I need his help all the time to believe with what that really means. Because once we step into the light, then... We're called to stay in the light, to remain in the light. Look what he says here. And I'm cheating a little bit and going into Gary's passage next week a little bit here. But it says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. That word hold can be translated abide, remain, stay. And he says, if we do that, we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. So once you recognize the light, you receive Jesus into your life as the light, then you remain in the light. So... Some of you know this. Um, I had an aunt who went home to be with the Lord this last year, and she was really the, the spiritual matriarch of that side of the family. She's just an amazing, godly woman. Tremendous impact on my own relationship with the Lord and in my own spiritual journey. And she lived in the Hepner area, which is in eastern Oregon. And Lexington is where my, my dad's parents and her parents lived. She was my dad's sister. So as we were headed to her memorial um, a couple months ago, we stopped in Hepner, which, you know, if you blink, you'll miss it. You'll pass right through it. And we drove by the house where my grandparents had lived. And um, it took me back to this time when I was doing some work for my, my grandpa. And have you ever done that where you go somewhere and all of a sudden a prior memory, a prior experience is just right there? I mean, it's just like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. And so as we drove by this house, I saw his woodshed, which was still there. The current owner still had it up. 
And he had had a bunch of wood in there. And I remember this one time that he asked me to go do this work for him. And so I said, sure. So I went out to the woodshed and I was transferring wood from one pile to another. And I was beginning to get to the bottom of the pile of the wood. And it's dark in here, understand. There's no light in there. Just sunlight here and there. And I moved this, this stick of wood and the biggest rat you have ever seen. It was... <laughs> I mean, I, I just got done fishing, right? And I didn't catch any fish, so I can't say I caught one this big. But the rat, the rat was, I mean, I wanted to put a saddle on that thing and ride it around. It was huge. Had its own zip code. I mean, it was a big rat. And it immediately ran across the floor into the light. And as soon as it hit the light, it went right back into the wood on the other side. And I thought, what a picture of how I choose to respond to God's light sometimes because in my sinfulness when I'm exposed in that when it surfaces in my marriage with how I'm interacting with Jamie when it surfaces in my relationships with my friends or even some of the team here my first response when I step into the light when my sin is exposed is to run and I do that sometimes by just denying that there's a problem or defending myself or going on the attack or just justifying myself. There are times I, I feel guilty because I have done something wrong, which is what guilt is about. But then there are times I'm doing business with shame, which is there's something wrong with me. And yet, Jesus exposes us in those situations when he shines his light on those parts of our relationships and our character. It isn't to condemn us. He wants that guilt to move us to right relationship with him if we've truly done something wrong. And he wants to remove that shame from us and, and from me. But you can't blame us, I think, for wanting to hide, especially in this culture, how does this culture treat brokenness? How does this culture treat us when we do have something exposed? Are we not condemned, canceled, attacked, ridiculed? But God's not like that. Jesus is not like that. We're safe with him. When he exposes our sin, it's because he has something better for us, as painful as that process can be. And ironically, the thing that we fear the most is that which gives us freedom, and that's stepping into the light. So I'm going to press on this a little bit. What are you hiding from the Lord this morning? What is it that he's put his finger on in your life, and you know it's sinful, you know it's selfish? But you're kind of doing this from him because you don't want that exposed and see what this is really describing is this process known as repentance and let's let's give this a little time here because we've actually seen this arc being illustrated for us throughout the gospel of John to this point but repentance is a whole person action. It has this idea, this reality of turning from sin and turning back to God, but, but it's more than that. 
It's changing our values, it's changing our allegiances, it's changing our words and, and our actions. And, and we see this illustrated for us throughout John's gospel. In John chapter 5, remember with me when he heals the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, at the end of that whole exchange, what does he tell the paralytic? Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, he's not saying you're going to have something worse than paralysis happen to you, but evidently something was going on in that guy's heart that he wasn't fully healed from, and that was kind of the point in that Jesus wasn't just trying to heal him physically. He was trying to heal him spiritually. And so he was calling him to repentance. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. And then we move into chapter 6 and we see, you know, these crowds of people who are following Jesus and he does this miraculous miracle. One of, it's one of the few miracles, well, besides the resurrection. It is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And that being said, he feeds thousands of people and they follow him and they're really interested in him because they're looking for McDonald's, not for Messiah. Jesus, just make us some more bread. And he calls them to repentance. And the festival faithful who keep coming to the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, again through this exchange, these last several weeks and chapters, we see him calling them to repentance. And he's doing it again here today. And then we see the adulterous woman last week. And whether she had truly committed adultery or not isn't really the issue. There was adultery going on with or with her, maybe. But certainly with those who were condemning her they had gotten into bed with condemnation and contempt. And what does Jesus call them all to? Repentance. What does he say to the woman at the end of the exchange? I don't condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. Easier said than done, right? You ever felt stuck in a cycle of sin? You ever kept repeating a brokenness, a selfishness that you know God doesn't want for you, but here it is again. You're doing it again. You're thinking about it again. You're living it out again. Of course you have. I have. Of course you felt like you're defaulting to the same sin because you probably are. And what's important for us to remember is that we got to do business with that. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, that's just the way it's always going to be. No, because the problem with sin is that it always grows. In James chapter 1, he talks very clearly about this progression of sin, and sin never stays the same. That's why in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about cutting off your hand if you need to, plucking out your eye if you need to. Is he advocating self-mutilation? No. The point is he's talking about deal with sin drastically. Do what you have to do to repent, to not live that way because you don't have to live that way because of what we have. We have God's love and God's acceptance. You know, only God can truly give us grace. And grace is God's unmerited love, unearned love, given for the sake of right relationship with him and others, and it's also empowerment to serve him. But all that being said, your acceptance to God is not based on your resume. My acceptance to God is not based on my resume. It's based on his. That's why it's called grace. You don't earn it. You just receive it. And that's what makes you acceptable to God, is receiving his love, not 
trying harder or being a better person or what have you. All the things that empty religion tells us to do. No. You respond to God's grace. It's a gift. That's how he accepts you. However, it absolutely matters how you live and how I live. Because once you've accepted him into your life, once you've experienced his love, then he expects you to live out his love by trusting and obeying him. His approval is very much contingent on trusting and obeying him. You have his acceptance, but now you live out that acceptance for his approval. And he wants to give you his approval. Do you believe that no one wants to bless your life more than God does? Say yes. That's not a trick question. It's true. It may not always feel that way, but it's true. And sometimes we don't live by what we feel. We live by what we know. God wants to bless your life. That's why Jesus says, not just once, not just twice, but three times in John chapter 14, later on in this gospel, if you love me, you will what? You obey me. If you love me, you obey what I command. In fact, John will say in his letter, 1 John, he'll go even further and say in verse chapter 2, if you don't obey God and you say that you love him, you're a liar. Wow. But it's true. But here's even better news. And this, again, is, is, is from Gary. Gary has helped me understand and appreciate this, and I absolutely believe it's biblical and true. Your deepest desire, my deepest desire, if you have Jesus in your life, if you've re received and responded to his love, is to trust and obey him. Because you have a new core, you have a new heart, you have a new you. It's not necessarily the strongest desire in the moment, right? But your deepest desire is to trust and obey him. Because the reality is, we are, we are thirsty people. We are hungry people. I am thirsty and hungry. And because of that, in my sinfulness, in my selfishness, I will look to things to satisfy that hunger and satisfy that thirst that never will. And I will take good things and I will make them the ultimate thing, which is a form of idolatry. And we all can gravitate to this. I get my identity from what I do or from what I accomplish or from what I have. Is that really the source of my true identity? My culture tells me it is every day. Or I will get my security from what's in my bank account or from what others say about me or from what I'm seeing on social or what's happening with my circumstances. Are those things really the source of my security? No, but I sometimes look to them for that. Or the expectations I put on Jamie, the expectations you put on your spouse if you're married, or the expectations you put on siblings or family or friends. Can anyone truly fulfill all those expectations? And the answer is no. But sometimes I make those demands. And let's not even get started on truth. We live in a culture that tells us, well, your truth is true for you and my truth is true for me. You create your own truth. Really? I thought following Jesus Christ and trusting and obeying him was about exchanging my truth for his and aligning my truth for his. Because by the way, there is absolute truth that is true for every person in every culture in every context in every situation and it's called God's truth. And if you want the blessing of God, you need to live according to that truth. My friends, I love you, but you need to repent this morning because I need to repent this morning.
What people think about me is way too important to me. It's way too much of a source of security for me. And I also, in my brokenness and selfishness, have this propensity not to listen to God and align with God, but to tell God what he should do and how he should be doing it. I'm not talking about prayer. I'm just talking about pride. I need to repent of those things. And you know what? I can. Because I've received Jesus into my life. And because I have the power of the Holy Spirit, his very presence in my life. So, how does the story end? One of the things I love about the Gospel of John, and about the Gospels, and about the Word of God, is that so often we're told these stories, these compelling, vivid, powerful stories, and we don't know how they end. What happened with the woman who was caught in adultery last week? Did she leave her life of sin? Because Jesus didn't condemn her, but he gave her back her dignity and her worth and her identity and gave her his grace so that she could not have a license to go do it all over again, but to be able to escape from the life she had been living so that she could have the full blessing of God. How'd that work out? We don't know. The question is hanging out there. But this is what we can and do know. How will your story end? How will mine end? Will you choose to receive Jesus into your life? Will you choose to remain in the light as you trust and obey him, as you choose to repent? Will you allow him to shine his light in your life? Will I allow him to shine his light in my life to expose my sin, not to shame me, but to free me and to help me trust him for something better? How's that story going to end? You are the one with the answer. So as our worship team comes, and as we have this long, deliberate time to just do business with God, remember what he's done for us. If you haven't received him, receive him into your life. If you have received him into your life, what does it look like? What does it mean for you to remain in his light? What is he shining his light on in your life to call you away from? Because thankfully, this God will not share you with anything that will take advantage of you, hurt you, wrong you he won't share you with sin thank God for that literally because he's got something better for you so will you believe that will you receive that I'm going to invite any of our crew here who have these name tags to just go ahead and stand up and go off to the sides I'm going to have our prayer teams who are with us this service to go ahead and come forward we want this to be a time for you to respond however you see fit we have communion off to the sides go take it Take someone with you. Take your family with you. Go celebrate communion. Remember what Jesus has done for you. If you would like to receive Christ, you can do that right where you are. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that in just a minute. But you can come with one of us, and we would love to pray with you to do that. We believe in the power of healing, and some of you need it. Come ask for it, because God can and does heal. Or maybe you're up against something and you don't know what to do. We would love to pray with you about that. This is your time, your space, your place to do business with God. And this is a safe place. If you get up and go pray with one of us, you know what people are going to think? They're just like me. They need prayer. And that's exactly right. So would you stand with me? And then we'll enter into our time of, of response. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. I am so thankful 
that I don't have to settle for selfishness and sinfulness. The life you offer me now and forever is so richer and fuller and satisfying and joyful and purposeful than that. Please help all of us to stop settling for sin and to choose to believe you for something better. Lord, I pray that you will give us a freedom to seek you now through prayer, through worship, through listening to you, through taking communion, through however you direct us so that we can respond to you. And I pray for anyone here who has not made that defining moment decision to receive you into their lives as their Lord and Savior, that right now, between you and them, they would just say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I receive you into my life. And for those of us who have done that, Lord, would you help us remember who it is we have and what it is you've done for us. We love you. And we pray that your spirit would continue to move now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Do you believe what you just sang? Yes. I, I hope you do. Once we recognize him for who he is, when we receive him into our life, when we remain in his light, he also calls us to go and reflect his light. Because you see, when you know Jesus, you are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand where it can shine and give light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. So as we go from here, my prayer for us is that we would reflect this light, that we would lead others to the light by loving them, by extending the same grace to them that's been extended to us. So let's be a community of Jesus followers who extend grace. Let me pray that over us. Lord, thank you for this sweet time to pursue you together, discover you together, learn about you together. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has received you into their life for the first time, that you would begin to change them as you promised to do, that they would truly experience life the way you've intended it to be lived. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, would we live the life that you call us to? Would we trust and obey you, believing that you will bless us, that you want what's best for us, and that we can trust you? And so, Lord, as we go from here, would we reflect the light? Would we lead others to the light? Would we love other people the way you have first loved us? We thank you so much, Jesus, for this sweet time. And we give the rest of this day to you. And it's in your name we pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we hope we get to see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.